Well, good day, fellowship. It's good to have you with us as we have the blizzard of 2018 happening right now. Thanks for braving the weather. And for those of you who are live streaming with us on Facebook, welcome also. It's great to have you here. Um, we had a group who left before the snow at three in the morning. A group left to uh, El Salvador to dig a freshwater well this week and to hold some uh, teachings, um, hygiene teachings to the people in that area. And then ultimately they, they built that right next to a church. And so they'll not only give good fresh water to people around them, but they'll also give Jesus the living water around them. And so it really sets up that church for success after they come back after a week. Pray for them as they're leaving and they're entering into El Salvador just as we speak. I'm also leading a trip to Israel this coming May, May 29th to June 9th, and this is my last push for it because we only have six spots left. If you would like to go or like to more information about it, I'll be right up here after the service and uh, I'll give you that information, but my final push as we go through this for this year. So I'm glad that you're here because we're continuing in this series called The Story of Us. And at this point in the story, remember the story begins and it ends with Jesus. He was here before the foundation of the world. And he, at that time, before he created everything, he had us on his mind. We looked at a creation. We've looked at the promise that he made to Abraham. And now we're looking at this whole concept of deliverance. And just as we approach this topic, I want to ask you, what right now are you crying for deliverance in your life? Some of you may be going through extreme pain or some uh, issues where you've dealt with suffering or the loss of someone or the loss of a dream. I want to talk to you about the deliverance of God for our lives. And it may not necessarily mean that you're delivered into health or into prosperity or into wealth. But are you willing to be content with Jesus, that he's enough? And I think if we can see his perspective, then we can pull back from the pain that we're in right now just to see the ultimate deliverance that Jesus promises in a relationship with him. We join now in the book of Exodus. It's right after Genesis, second book of the Bible. And as we go to this point, we go and engage the lands of the scriptures. We're in Egypt here, and that's where we left Joseph last week. And he and his relatives, about 70 people with Jacob, are in, are in uh, Egypt. And 400 years pass between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. And in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, it says this. It says that a new king arose uh, in Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people... Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now, this is something that's been fairly consistent with the Jewish people throughout their history, is that as they've multiplied or as they've become more blessed... It's resulted in the people who they live in that land, whether it's nationalism or whatever the idea, uh, where they are against them and where they persecute them. We even see in the 20th century with Nazi Germany and how they re reacted to the Jewish people. And here in Egypt, it has a long history. What would God do? 
I want to kind of share this story with you from some artists who uh, are part of this group called the Bible Project. Two in particular, Tim Mackey and John Collins are 20-somethings, and they're extremely creative men who uh, love to explain the scriptures and illustrate the scriptures as they tell the story. They're going to share this whole story in about six minutes. And by the way, at any one of these stories that we go through on the story of us, you can go online, Google the Bible Project, go to their website and download any of these videos for free. They're all crowdsourced and funded. I gave them some money to finish a project that they were doing. And I've just loved how they do this extremely crazy talented in how they do this. I'd like you to see the events of the Exodus where God was the great deliverer. Take a look at this. The book of Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible, and it picks up the storyline from the previous book, Genesis, which ended with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, leading his large family of 70 people down to Egypt. Now, Jacob's 11th son, Joseph, had been elevated to second in command over Egypt, and he had saved his whole family in a famine. And so Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, offered the family to come live there as a safe haven. And so eventually Jacob dies there in Egypt, and Joseph and all his brothers do too. About 400 years pass, and the story of the Exodus begins. Now, that name refers to the event that takes place in the first half of the book, Israel's Exodus from Egypt. But the book has a second half that takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. In this video, we'll just focus on the first half, where centuries have passed, and the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied, and they filled the land. Now, this line is a deliberate echo back to the blessing that God gave all humanity back in the Garden of Eden. And it reminds us of the big biblical story so far. Humanity forfeited God's blessing through sin and rebellion, and so God chose Abraham's family as the vehicle through which he would restore his blessing to all the world. But the new Pharaoh does not view Israel as a blessing. He actually thinks this growing Israelite immigrant group is a threat to his power. And so just as in Genesis, humanity rebels against God's blessing, so here Pharaoh attempts to destroy the source of God's blessing, the Israelites. He brutally enslaves them in forced labor, and then he orders that all the Israelite boys be drowned in the Nile River. Now, Pharaoh, he is the worst character in the Bible so far. His kingdom epitomizes humanity's rebellion against God. Pharaoh has so redefined good and evil according to his own interests that even the murder of innocent children has become good to him. And so Egypt has become worse than Babylon from the book of Genesis. And so now Israel cries out for help against this new Babylon, and God responds. God first turns Pharaoh's evil upside down as an Israelite mother throws her boy into the Nile River, but in a basket. And so he floats safely right down into Pharaoh's own family. He's named Moses, and he grows up to eventually become the man that God will use to defeat Pharaoh's evil. In the famous story of the burning bush, God appears to Moses and commissions him to go to Pharaoh and order him to release the Israelites. And God says that he knows Pharaoh will resist, and so he will bring his judgment on Egypt in the form of plagues. Then God also says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. And so we're introduced into the next main part of the story, the confrontation between God and Pharaoh. Now, what does this mean that God says he'll harden Pharaoh's heart? It's super important to read this section of the story really closely and in sequence. 
In Moses and Pharaoh's first encounter, we're told simply that Pharaoh's heart grew hard. There's no implication that God did anything. And so in response, God sends the first set of five plagues, each one confronting Pharaoh and one of his Egyptian gods. And each time, Moses offers a chance for Pharaoh to humble himself and to let the Israelites go. But after each plague, we're told that Pharaoh either hardened his heart or that his heart grew hard. He's doing this of his own will. And so eventually, it's with the second set of five plagues that we begin to hear how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So the point of the story seems to be this. Even though God knew that Pharaoh would resist his will, God still offered him all of these chances to do the right thing. But eventually, Pharaoh's evil reaches a point of no return. I mean, even his own advisors think that he has lost his mind. And it's at that point that God takes over and bends Pharaoh's evil towards his own redemptive purposes. God lures Pharaoh into his own destruction as he saves his people, which is what happens next. With the final plague, it's the night of Passover, and God turns the tables on Pharaoh. Just as he killed the sons of the Israelites, so God will kill the firstborn in Egypt with a final plague. But unlike Pharaoh, God provides a means of escape through the blood of the lamb. And here the story stops and introduces us in detail to the annual Israelite ritual of Passover. On the night before Israel left Egypt, they sacrificed a young spotless lamb and painted its blood on the doorframe of their house. And when the divine plague came over Egypt, the houses covered with the blood of the lamb were passed over and the sun spared. And so every year since, the Israelites have reenacted that night to remember and to celebrate God's justice and his mercy. But Pharaoh, because of his pride and rebellion, he loses his own son, and he's compelled to finally let the Israelites go free. And so the Israelite slaves make their exodus from Egypt. But no sooner do they leave that Pharaoh changes his mind, and he gathers his army and chases after the Israelites for a final showdown. As the Israelites pass through the waters of the sea safely, Pharaoh charges towards his own destruction. The Exodus story concludes with the first song of praise in the Bible. It's called the Song of the Sea. And the final line declares that the Lord reigns as king. And then the song retells in poetry what the story of God's kingdom is all about. It's about how God is on a mission to confront evil in his world and to redeem those who are enslaved to evil. God is going to bring his people into the promised land where his divine presence will live among them. This story is what it looks like when God becomes king over his people. And so that is the picture of God as our deliverer. And I'd encourage you anytime as we go through this story, download one of those uh, videos and uh, even with your kids, because it makes, makes sense and you can understand that better. Uh, I wanted to talk to you here, though, about what about the heart of God for deliverance, because this story is an ancient story that has a very practical picture. The story of the Exodus is perhaps one of the greatest Old Testament previews to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so by looking at it, there's a lot of parallels to the work that Christ has done for us by coming and being our Passover lamb. And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the call of Moses in the wilderness, the burning bush experience, and what 
Who is God when it comes to deliverance? Then we're going to look at what God will do. What does the work of God in deliverance for us? And then we're going to celebrate. We're going to remember and celebrate the work of God for us by the taking of the Lord's Supper, which is a very much of a fulfillment of the Passover Supper as celebrated by the Israelites. So let's start with the heart of God for deliverance. And what do we need to know? And in Exodus chapter 3, where God calls Moses to lead this deliverance for his people, he says this to Moses. He says, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I've, I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. There's four things we need to remember about God and his heart for deliverance. When we're going through pain and suffering, when we're going through a time of injustice, when you look at the world around you and you have huge questions about the goodness of God and the evil of humanity, there's some things we need to remember. Number one is this. God sees it. God sees it. God sees it even when no one else can see it. If something's happened to you that only you are the witness of or you're the only the experiencer of the pain or the hurt or the evil, God sees it. There's nothing hidden from his sight. Here God said to Moses, he says, I've seen their affliction. I see it. I get it. I see what they see. Now think about this. If you're a parent, your child, your son was taken away from you and thrown into the Nile and drowned, just because you're growing as and experiencing blessing as a people, don't you wonder what God, do you see this? Do you see what's happening in the world today? And God said, I see it. I see it. Proverbs says this, that the eyes of the Lord are in every place. There's no one, there's nothing hidden from his sight. And he keeps watch on the evil and the good. No one is outside of the eyes of God. God sees it and he sees it even clearer than we do. But look what else. He not only sees it, but he hears our prayers. God says, I've heard the cry from my people who are under the burden of the Egyptians. And and that's an important thing because when you cry out to God, when you seek him, is he a God who's distracted? Is he someplace else like in the world and in in Africa and he's really busy because something going on there and you're here just in Topeka and crying out to him? Oh, I'm sorry. No, he's there. He's everywhere. He's he's omnipresent and he's omniscient. He knows it all and he sees it and he hears our prayer. When David and his own life was under and cried out for deliverance because his own life was being persecuted by Saul, in Psalm 18.6, he says, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. And from his temple, he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. God hears He hears our prayers. Even when you don't feel like God hears you, even when you don't get the response from him that's like, oh yes, there's an audible voice or something changes that your your pain goes away. God hears your prayer. So he sees, he hears. But look what else it says. He knows, he knows. David also wrote a psalm about the knowledge of God in his life. And it's in Psalm 130, um, 139, beginning with verse 1 through 6. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. 
You know, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. And then look at this, look at this fatherly picture that, that is given here. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Now think about this. It's just the picture. It's, it's like this father and a son walking down a path or a father and a daughter. And he says, you hem me in behind. In other words, you're protecting me from whatever might be attacking me. And you're preparing a way for me, which is before. And then, especially for those of us who have like physical touches, our love language, you lay your hand upon me. Your heavenly father has his hand on you. He's guiding you. Even in the midst where you cry out for deliverance. God sees, God hears, God knows, but also I act. God acts and, and he says, look, I see that and I will come down and I will deliver you, Israel, from the burden, from the slavery of the Egyptians. Isaiah would speak of this. He, he would even go back, refer back to this. He says, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No, I has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Think about these four things. This is the heart of God for deliverance in our lives. He sees, he hears, he knows, he acts. Church, that ought to fuel our prayer lives. Because this is who God is, because this is his heart for deliverance. We need to be people who run to him, who come to him. And we call it the way he sees it. And we call out to him because he hears us. And we share with him and we get and we know what he knows as we develop in our search for him and then our belief in him and that we trust in his work to do it. So what does Moses do? Moses hears from the Lord and he leaves and he reengages from the wilderness back to Egypt, the environment he grew up in. And he goes to Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let you go. Matter of fact, I'm going to make it harder for you guys. If you think you need to leave, I'm going to show you you need to stay. And so he he put the burden as greater and they had to go out and and, um, harvest the straw to build the bricks to build his building campaign with. And the people even cried out to Moses and said, what in the world are you doing? You're making life difficult for us. And Moses goes to God and he says, God, this plant is not working. And God comes and speaks to him again. Take a look at Exodus chapter six, beginning with verse six. And this is where God is telling him not only who he is, but what he'll do. And we need to know this. We need to know that God will deliver us. We need to know that. And look what he says in Exodus chapter six, beginning with verse six. He says, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am 
the Lord. Remember the name of God that he's saying here. I am the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. That's Yahweh, which is his covenant relationship. Before this, he said to, to Moses, remember, I have remembered the covenant I established with Abraham. Remember all the way back in Genesis 12 when God said, Abraham, I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and he who curses you, I will curse and all the nations on earth earth will be blessed through you. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. So he comes back 400 years later and he says to Moses, you tell the people that that Yahweh, that God who promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he means business. He's working and this is what I'll do. And he tells them what he's going to do and then he ends it with the remember I am the Lord. And what this comes down to is do you believe God is who he says he is and will do what he says he'll do? That's deliverance. Because deliverance is not what you can do. Deliverance is not what I will be doing or what I can do. Deliverance is trusting in what only God can do for us. And that's why I bolded all those phrases of what God will do. We need to be people who are trusting in God's deliverance for us. And look at the four things God will do. I summarized them into four statements. The first one is this. God will deliver us. Look what he says there. He says, I will bring you out of the land or the burden from the Egyptians. And I will deliver you out of slavery. The gospel, folks, is God's plan for deliverance for us. Think about the Passover when they celebrated the Passover that evening. And you think about what they had to do. The, the Israelites had to sacrifice a lamb without blemish and take its blood. It's kind of gruesome. Take its blood and, and, and paint it over their doorposts. And that blood was a picture of the covering of God over their homes. It's a hard thing to read in the 21st century. But back then, it's just part of the ancient ritual system of of sacrifice that they needed a covering. Remember all the way back in Genesis? When Adam and Eve, when they fell into sin, the first thing they noticed was their nakedness, right? And so what did they do? They tried to cover. They tried to cover. And God said, who are you? That Who told you you were naked? And Adam said, this woman you put in my life, you know, and Eve said, this snake that you made, you know, it tempted me. And they blamed and because they did not like shame and neither do we. So we've been covering and the choice has always been, will we cover ourselves or we allow God to cover us? And that's the gospel. That's the gospel. When we trust in God's covering for us. And so. Moses called the people to do that and and what they did is as the angel of death came over the land all those who were covered by the blood of the lamb were sla- were saved now question who were the israelites saved from they were saved from god right It was his judgment that was coming over them. And they were saved from his judgment, but they were also saved by God. And that's the gospel. You are saved from God and his wrath and his judgment for your sin, but you're saved by God because Jesus, God in the flesh, came and lived a perfect life, a life we couldn't live. And he died and he rose again for our sin. God is the deliverer and it's his work. That must save us, save us, not ours. All the major religious systems of the world, they preach a false message, just to be honest. 
And it's all of what you need to do for yourself. You need to be a better person. You need to be righteous. You need to go to church. You need to give in the offering. You need to serve. All those things because all those things will ultimately make up for all the bad things that you do in life. So you reach a point where your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. What point is that? How do you know? You never know. And so religion has been guilty of just putting more shame and guilt on people. It's not been given this deliverance that can only come from God. And the beauty of the gospel is that we can't save ourselves, but Jesus has. And Jesus lived a perfect life. He was that Passover lamb who died for us, provided a full and final covering for us. You may not believe this, but do you just see the picture, the culmination of the Passover to ultimately the work and the person of Jesus who did this for us? God is our deliverer. Secondly, God will redeem us. God will redeem us. Um, Moses was, it was uh, to tell the people that God would redeem them with an outstretched arm and mighty or great acts of judgment. And that's what the plagues were. And, and as they saw what was happening with the judgment of Egypt, but also the protection of Israel, because the plagues affected the Egyptians, they didn't affect the Israelites. These were God's acts of salvation. And, and what redemption literally means is God purchasing us out of sin and slavery to sin and into life and liberty for our lives. And so when God redeems you and you trust in his redemption, you allow him to pay that for you. When Jesus was on the cross, his last words were, it is finished. Those three words, which ultimately meant God was fully satisfied with the payment of his death. When he died, the work that was needed for us was completely and fully and finally paid for by Christ. God will deliver us. God will redeem us. And look at this personal nature. God will adopt us. Look what he says. He says, I will take you as my own people. I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord. These are personal family terms that God is giving us. And there's this whole picture of we're no longer slaves. We're sons. And Paul really brings that out in the book of Galatians when he says of our new relationship with God through Christ is that we were once enemies. We were once strangers, but now we've been brought in by Christ. It's not that we work for it and, and don't try to discount God's grace by working for it. Trust in his work. And we're no longer, in, in through faith, we're no longer slaves. We're sons. We've been adopted into his family. That's the work of Christ for us. And then God will bring us into. Look what he said to, to Moses. He said that I will bring you into the land that I promised. Here God is our father, but he's also our guide. And he guides us into his promises as well as his possession. The children of Israel, when they were delivered out of Egypt, they, had, they were delivered out with a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. But we're led by the Holy Spirit, God's presence in us to lead and to guide us. And we're to know after following Christ that he is the Lord. And we're called to be people just like Israel who trust in God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. God will reveal in fact to us as he did for Israel 
with Egypt. And there's two sides of this deliverance. There's the side before you're delivered and the side, the side after you're delivered. Let's take a look at Israel when Moses went back to them and told them what God would do for them. Look at verse 9 of chapter 6. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. There's two things that keep us from trusting in the deliverance of Christ. One is a brokenness within us, and the other is the brokenness around us. And the two can interact. Some of us can be going through so much pain. Some of us can look at the injustice of the world. Some of us experience the wicked and the evilness and the exploitation of life. And we can cry, oh God, how can you allow this? I won't believe you until that makes sense. Because our spirits are broken. Some of us have been trying for years and years to try to impress God. And we still feel that we fall short. Boy, a broken spirit through works, that can do that. That can do that. I grew up in the church and, and for most of my um, adolescent years, I dealt with self-righteousness. I just thought I was better than everyone else because I knew Jesus and they didn't. And, and I thought I was pretty good, but then God broke me with his grace. And I realized none of us deserve this, but all of us can have it through faith. These two things, a broken spirit and harsh slavery, the things within us and the things going on around us can keep us from trusting, can keep us from allowing God to deliver us. And that's what you see. Israel weighing Egypt or the promised land? Slavery or liberty? What do you want? These things are very real and they keep us from that relationship that God has for us. But the story goes on. And God didn't, God looked at this and he didn't say, forget it then. I'm not delivering you. I'm out of here. No, God was, was enduring with his grace in providing this deliverance for his people. So he sends these plagues and they started to experience his power and his acts of judgment. And they saw how he was delivering them. And then came the Passover when they, they, their lives and their families were covered. And that evening they were set free to go and to leave. And then they got to the Red Sea and they saw Pharaoh's uh, army chasing after them. And they said, what have you done, Moses? I mean, you've brought us out here just to be killed in the wilderness. And God would deliver them. And he would bring them up out of the Red Sea. And Pharaoh's armies would be crushed by the Red Sea. And in Exodus chapter 14, you get the other side of deliverance here. You get that picture in verse 30. It says, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw that the Egypt, saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the, in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So think about this. They started out before this deliverance happened. What? Broken spirit, harsh slavery. And at the end of this, what do we see? We saw an awe of God and a faith in God and in his servant Moses. And that's the heart of deliverance for us. We're given that picture before. We don't know how God's going to do it. And we've got to turn from ourselves to trust in the work of Christ. But what we ultimately will get is the work of God in our lives. That throughout all eternity, we will be in awe of who God is. We will fear him 
as our greatest fear, but not a fear of terror kind of fear, but a fear of God did this for me and the mighty acts of God has done this for me and then we will have a deepened faith in God. We're called to be people who trust in God's deliverance. Have you trusted in the deliverance of God for your life? Have you simply called it and said, God, I can't save myself Only you can. And have you looked at how Jesus came and he lived a perfect life for you? He died on a cross for you and rose again from the dead so that you can be, you can have life in his name. It's my prayer that you would put your faith and trust in the deliverance of Christ. I want to share a story with you of a guy named Richard who's new to our fellowship family. Um... Just 14 months ago, I mean, you have an incredible story of deliverance. Your story may not match this, but I want you to watch it, and I want you to look for the word deliverance in it. Take a look at his story. I stole a car. I ran from the police. I flipped it into a creek upside down. I thought I was going to die. My name is Richard, and I was born addicted to meth. I grew up in a wild and chaotic childhood. Both my parents were addicted to drugs. I started abusing drugs at a very young age. I thought that was normal. I spent the next 16 years in and out of juvie in prison. I didn't think uh, my life had a purpose. Everything was out of control and I didn't care. But 14 months ago, everything changed. I remember being upside down in the car water pouring in I couldn't get out and I remember saying Lord I'm sorry if this is how I'm going to go out make it fast next thing I remember is waking up on the side of the riverbed with sheriffs around me and I have no idea how I got there I pretty much was scared to change I didn't know what was in store for my future As part of rehab, I started going to church. I started learning about Jesus. I learned not to be selfish. Realized I need to put Christ first. And he's blessed me with learning how to love more, respect others, and even help others. I couldn't be the one driving the car anymore. I had to let Jesus drive the car because every time I drive the car, I end up running from the police or wrecking. Today I'm 14 months sober. Um, I'm getting married this summer to an amazing woman that stuck by my side through all this. I'm excited to see what the future holds instead of worrying about what the future holds. I feel God's gonna be working in my life in amazing ways and I'm really, really stoked on how he's gonna be using me. God has delivered me from a life that was either gonna get me shot put in jail or in the ground to a life that has meaning and purpose. Jesus transformed my life. Following Jesus is a bigger high than I have ever felt in my life. (laughs) 
So the story on Richard is that um, God is continuing to deliver him. Every day is a trusting in the deliverance of God for his life. And by the way, his parents have recently come to Christ and are following Christ. So that's a great, it's a great thing that's happening there. So after the deliverance of Israel, um, Israel was given the Passover supper to remember and celebrate the work of God for them as their deliverer. And if you've ever done a Passover supper, you know what I'm talking about. The children will ask mom and dad, what does this mean? And the parents would say, this is what it means. On that night when God delivered us out of slavery in Egypt, this is what he did. This is the Passover lamb. And it's interesting In the sovereign plan of God, the night Jesus was crucified was Passover in Israel. And as the Passover lamb was being sacrificed in, uh, on the temple mount, Jesus was being crucified on a cross outside the gates of Jerusalem. Jesus was our Passover lamb. And Jesus set up a new supper for us, one that would fulfill the Passover supper in that he would provide the deliverance for us through his body, through a new covenant forged in his blood. He would deliver us from sin and death and restore us back to God. The church is to remember and celebrate with this meal often until Jesus returns. And so that's what we're going to do. And hopefully as we even have our kids around us in this place, we, we are able to share the gospel with them and families keep this story going and this faith exercised in the person and the work of Jesus. I'm going to ask you if you have put, put your faith and trust in Christ and you have trusted in him to deliver you from your sin and death. Take this with us. Even if you don't normally come to fellowship, you're part of the family of God. Celebrate with us. If you haven't yet put your faith and trust in Christ, don't take this. It would just be a meaningless, meaningless ritual. And we want this to be authentic, an ex- authentic expression of your faith in the deliverance of Christ. I'm going to ask that we hang on to these two elements so that we can celebrate together.